hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Exploring the human endeavor. Hi, it's Patrick, and you're listening to Subtitle. We're a production of Quiet Juice and the Linguistic Society of America. Here's an episode that hasn't been available for a while, so we're republishing it. For this one, I dragged my former pod partner, Nina Porzuki, into a studio. Hello, Nina. Hello, Patrick Cox. Okay, I want to play you something. Okay. The next station is Westminster. Change for... So I was in London not so long ago with my 12-year-old daughter, and we were doing London stuff, going to places, and we had this app with us. It's called Over There. Over There. What does it do? Well, it's sort of a speaking GPS, or, you know, speaking Google Maps, something like that. Oh, it's designed cool. for blind people to orient themselves. T-bar, 69 feet. So it's telling you where you are. It can see the map, and it just kind of tells you where you are in the city. Yeah, right. And, and there's all kinds of audio nuances that also help you. Like the tag place sounds clear when you point directly at it but it's more staticky if you veer away from it. Oh, it's sort of like one of those you know, metal detectors, like, and then it just really hones in on like where the actual placement right. of the place. Okay. Right, right. Um, so this is where we ended up. Chelsea Football Club Stadium, 200 feet. Sorry, Nina, we didn't go to Liverpool. Chelsea. You want to say something to Nina? Chelsea rules. No, Liverpool rules. Liverpool FC. Sorry. Never walk alone, Patrick. You will walk alone. <laughs> Very clever, very clever ruse there. Note to listeners, Nina is a Liverpool fan. I'm a Chelsea fan. Right. Liverpool's better than Chelsea. Liverpool sucks. I didn't make her say that. They didn't even make it to the top five, suckers. (laughs) Yeah, they did. They're doing much better than Chelsea this year. No, they're not in the top five. Yeah, they are. (laughs) What number are they? Three or four. Three. They don't deserve to be number three. Honestly, they just suck terribly. Their players are terrible, and all they do is try to look like they know it, but they don't. Oh yeah, and they're stupid. The words of a 12-year-old. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> but, but moving on, the, the point of this app over there, it can be tremendously helpful to people who just can't see you know, names of places on a map. And it's one way in which some designers are trying to keep blind people abreast of technological advancement. Right. No, this is like a, a very, very interesting idea. Actually, this just happened to me this weekend. There was a woman, she was blind, she was on the corner. I was biking by and she said, hey. She's like, is this, I forget what street it was, but she's like, is this like Fremont Street? And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, it is. And she kept going on her way. But like, had she had this app, it would have been really interesting. This is something that completely sidesteps Braille. Ah, uh, yeah, that's right. No Braille is involved. But can you use it with Braille? Like, if you have a Braille reader, can you, you use it, like, is it, like, adjacent to Braille? You can, but you don't need it. Ah, interesting. It's speaking to you. Yeah. I mean, it begs the question, how much do blind people today really need Braille? That's a very good question. So what would you find out, Patrick? In today's pod... How should the story of Braille be told? Do we talk of its past, present, and future? Or of the beginning, the middle, and the end of Braille? 
So I think everyone knows a little bit about Braille. It has dots. Dots. Embossed on signs, on paper. Cute dots. Here they are. Look, there's dots. This is Sherry Wells-Jensen, and she's doing her impression of how not to teach Braille and its history. We're going to draw them on the board. There's dots. <laughs> Sherry's a linguistics professor at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. And blind Braille readers, they have to put up with a lot of bad Braille history, usually told by sighted people. Sherry was good enough to fill in the huge holes in my knowledge of Braille, the holes between the dots. What about before there were dots, though? Before there was Braille? Pretty much blind people weren't going to school at all. The idea of literacy just wasn't even, it wasn't even on the radar. How could you possibly be literate if you couldn't see, right? Who in their right mind would think that blind people could ever read or write? You needed functioning eyes for that. The only thing that blind people could read were things that other people wrote for them. So that you had no, no note-taking, no journaling, no recording your great thoughts on paper. So literally, if you wanted to write something back, you would have to get a, a sighted person to write it down for you. Right. You'd have to get them to be the scribe. And then they would have to decide to go ahead. And after they'd written it, then they would have to decide to go ahead and emboss that for you. So writing anything down for yourself was probably a two or three step process. And that embossing, those would be letters in the Roman alphabet. Can you imagine how long it would take to prepare that, let alone read it? Totally impractical. This was the world that Louis Braille grew up in. Let's do his name in French at least once. Louis Braille. Est-ce que ça t'intéresse? Oh oui, monsieur. This is from a TV show about Louis Braille. It's actually dubbed into French from English. It's a Canadian production, so you have English-speaking actors depicting French people that's then dubbed into French. So Louis Braille was born in 1809. He was actually born sighted and then became blinded in an accident in his early childhood. He went to a school for the blind in Paris, and that is where he learned his ABCs with the help of those clunky embossed letters. So what was it about him that made him reject his lot in life and seek something more? Figuring this question out isn't that straightforward. It's really hard to find sort of a realistic biography of Louis Braille because, you know, you read some of these biographies and he's just descended from angels and he was this this amazing, special, <laughs> I don't know. A lot of them are really awfully sappy, so it's hard to get a handle on who the fellow was, really. Um, but there was something about his parents, I think. There was something about the way he was raised. Their, I don't know if you would say insistence or willingness to just let him bang around the house and figure things out and come and go as he wanted to. And it seemed to me that they did not spend a lot of time trying to control his motions. A lot of times, blind kids are raised with a lot of don't touch, sit still, be careful. And I think he was gifted with this kind of freedom to fall downstairs and climb trees and run around and just be a kid. And I think that makes such a crucial difference at a young age for kids. Okay, so here's this fearless boy with all of this built-in freedom. And France at the time, it was a huge power politically, intellectually, and especially militarily. Napoleon Bonaparte, he'd been waging war all over Europe. And it was a French battlefield innovation that gave Louis Braille, the school kid, his idea. 
People were always coming to the school apparently with the latest wacky new thing that was going to give blind people literacy. And one of the things that came through was a system of night writing, it was called, that they were using for military purposes because you don't want to light your lantern in the middle of the night on the front line to read it, right? Because boom, there you are. It served a need, night writing, and it used code. Lines and dashes represented sounds. It was fast to read and handy under the fingertips. And that was all the inspiration that 15-year-old Louis Braille needed. Of course, he also needed to improve this writing system, to compress it, over the objections of the French army captain who had invented it. J'ai passé des années à perfectionner tout ça. Oui, mais 8 à 10 points pour une lettre. Okay, let's flip to the English version of this show. Here's the army captain. I have spent years perfecting this. Yes, but eight or ten dots to one letter? That's far too many to remember. And far too many to feel out with one finger. So you would like to change my system? Well, now I've thought about this. I think with just a few alterations. Perhaps so. Well, for one thing, there's no punctuation or numbers. None there's a spelling. You don't have a spelling system. We need to be able to spell so that we can write correctly, just like sighted people. So the blind people themselves thought, this is genius. We love this. Suddenly we're reading and writing on our own. We're not waiting for a sighted person to do X, Y, Z for us. We can write down our own stuff. We can be rotten little 14-year-old boys and pass notes in class, right? We can do all this. We can do what we want to do. So the blind people loved it. The sighted people running the school hated it. They didn't like it partly because they didn't learn it, and so they didn't know what the kids were writing, and that's trouble. That's kids taking power away from the teachers. That's people assuming their own agency and becoming themselves. The sighted administrators of the school, they could have learned it. Anyone can learn Braille, just go ahead. But they didn't want to. And at one point, they actually went through the school, found all the kids' notes in Braille, found all the books that they had transcribed in Braille, hauled them out into the courtyard of the school, and they had themselves a book burning. Yeah, Braille book burning. You can feel them going, no, 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 no. Back that off. Back that off. You're not taking this power from us. You belong to us, you blind people. You are our philanthropy. We get a lot of prestige from, you know, taking care of you all. And your role is to sit quietly and do what we tell you to do, not invent a writing system and claim literacy and start doing your own thing. Wow, that's staggering. So how on earth did he manage to sort of convince officialdom that this was a good thing? I think, you know, like all power structures, there's some people who are in it to feed their egos and to have the power. But then there were also educators of blind people at the time who really were in it for blind people, who really understood that these are people with human rights and I'm going to use my power for good. So eventually the sighted people on behalf of blind people convinced each other that, yeah, we should go ahead and do this thing. It took a few more years, but Braille became established in France. And then it spread to other countries, not always with ease. In the U.S., conflicting writing systems held it back for decades. And even after that was settled, 
There was then a battle with the Brits over standardizing Braille for the English-speaking world. That ended with an agreement in 1932. But even after that, many American books for children used an older form of Braille. It wasn't really until the 1950s that everyone was on the same page. So several generations of blind Americans really lost out there. I'm sure that all the publishing houses and directors of schools for the blind thought they were doing the right thing. But they weren't. They were being stubborn. Good personal reminder, stubbornness gets you nowhere. Sherry Wells-Jensen was luckier. She was born after all of this. Not only that, she had great family support. My mother learned to read Braille before I did because she figured I was going to have to read it, so she might as well figure it out too. So I had the advantage of, you know, my, mom, my mom could write me a letter when I went to camp. As a kid, she used to wait on summer mornings for the mail guy to come. He'd pull into the driveway and toot his horn, and that meant he had a book for me. He had a book for me, whatever it was going to be, you know, from the lending library. And I'd go tearing down the stairs and fling myself down the front porch steps and crash into his car and say, give it to me, give it to me. And it was this big moment that there was going to be a book. And you bet that I read every word of that book. Every word. I didn't skip a page because it was the book that there was to read for that week. But now if I want something, anything that's online, I can read in Braille. And that's amazing to me. Like I can get a book and go, I don't want to finish this. It's sort of a weird kind of freedom to be able to skip things, to know that there's another book that you can just change to if you don't like what you're reading. I could even start in the middle if I want to. But that's not what most kids get. So they get a little bit of Braille during the day, whatever whatever is brailled for them. They come home to a largely brailleless environment where sighted kids, there's just reading everywhere. Probably if you look around you right now, there's all kinds of words. Yeah. There's words on signs, words on just books. I don't know. I don't even know. You're right. Yeah. It's everywhere. I think the nearest braille to me right now is probably out in the hallway, there might be a number on the door. And that, that's the only thing I can read. I'm betting it's the only thing I can read in this whole building are those numbers on the doors. Maybe it says exit. Maybe, there's, maybe it says restroom on the restroom. But there's this absence of the written word that little kids, and, and adults too, but, but crucially that little kids experience when they're braille readers. Whereas you are bombarded with print everywhere. There's words, words, words. And that has a marvelous beneficial effect for little kids learning to read. Yeah, of course. And for adults, once they left school, uh, continuing to be fully literate. Right, and it's so easy. Like, you want to read something, you know, there's a whole library full of hundreds of thousands of different books just sitting there on the shelf, and you don't even have to have a plan. You don't even have to know what you want. You can just walk up and say, oh, look, there's a blue one. I'll pick up that. It's got words in it. And the unconscious ease of words everywhere is something that you don't experience if you're a Braille reader. And what about the the numbers for Braille literacy? I mean, is is it in decline or is it not? I, I, I can't really get a handle on exactly where we're at. Well, I think that's accurate. The lack of handle is, I think, the accurate state. Because there are numbers that we like to use, and people will say, oh, only 10% of people who 
could benefit from Braille are reading Braille. But if you try to really track that number back and say, well, who did that survey and what year was this anyway and where is the documentation of that, you can't find it. What counts as knowing Braille? Do you have to know the whole 180 set of word contractions? Do you have to be able to read a certain number of words per minute? What counts as knowing? Uh, what counts as using? Every day? Is that, does that have to be every day? I don't know. We need a census. You know, we don't have good numbers. Even so, Sherry adds this after a long pause. It's probably lower than it ought to be. It's an undeniable anxiety, not knowing how many people use Braille. And on top of that, suspecting it might not be that widespread. Another anxiety. Will it soon become outdated? On that front, the Braille Authority of North America and its sister organizations around the world, they're trying to keep up with how people communicate, not just with contractions that make Braille quicker to read or write so you can use special characters to represent more than one letter at a time, like A-N-D or I-N-G, but also with things like all caps, hashtags, etc. So now there's a new standard, Unified English Braille, which addresses a bunch of these issues. Okay, so Braille can modernize every once in a while. Fine. But there's technology too. There are different ways to read and write. Many blind people read and write emails by listening and speaking. It's quicker, more efficient to use text-to-speech technology. If you want to read a book, well, there's plenty of choice there, too. And she had never forgotten that if you drink much from a bottle marked poison, it is almost certain to disagree with you sooner or later. You can also talk to your smartphone. It'll talk back to you. And there are apps like Over There, the one that my daughter and I messed around with in London, making navigation a bit easier if you can't see. But maybe also innovations like that, app by app, are chipping away at the belief that blind people need Braille. I mean, is it becoming redundant? If not now, then quite soon in the future? I'm blind, and I've been blind since I was four, and I'm now 50 or so. This is Josh Mealy. He's a scientist, and he runs a lab at the Smith-Kettlewell Eye Research Institute in San Francisco, and he designed the interface for the Over There app. And while I am a huge Braille advocate, I use Braille every day myself. Braille is not the one solution to our information accessibility challenges. Accessibility challenges. That's what gets Josh up every morning. Pretty much all his research, all his work, is geared to improving blind people's access to the world. There's usually more problems than solutions. Like, how do you read a web page, including the graphics? Or how do you make Google Maps work for you? Or how can you prioritize what you hear so you filter out the unimportant stuff? And increasingly, the problems and the solutions, they don't involve Braille. Or if they do, Braille is just one of many solutions. Whenever you design a system, you have to think in as many ways as possible about who's going to be interacting with it, and how they're going to get the information they need. And the more ways you can represent the information, the better. Josh's latest project is a series of street signs he's working on for San Francisco and New York City. He shows me some prototypes. The signs are rectangular, about the size of a small notebook. The idea is for them to be posted at intersections next to crosswalks. They contain a ton of information, 
more than is currently the case. Josh shows me a prototype full of embossed shapes. The first symbol is a car, and it's an oval shape with a dot at the front end of it. That dot, because it's at the front, also tells you the traffic direction. The next symbol, as I move across, is a bus, right, going in the opposite direction. Then we have a little transit island. Then on the other side, there's a car going in the opposite direction. You can read the name of the street on the sign in embossed letters and in Braille. And these signs, they'll also have radio frequency identification tags. So if you have your phone with you, you can get all the information that way too. In order to produce these signs, we used the latest in UV tactile printing technology. So the thing that we use to produce these signs is actually really high tech and really cool. But the signs themselves are fairly low tech. But crammed with info that currently doesn't exist. This is classic Josh Mealy, this high tech, low tech combo. And just in case you think he's down on Braille, he really isn't. In fact, he thinks that we may be on the cusp of a Braille renaissance because Electronic braille readers, big, clunky, expensive things that have been around for decades, they're now being made from very different components. Now all that shit's much smaller and much cheaper and and much more reliable. And so now we can come back to that idea and say, hey, wait a second. That's actually going to work now that a servo motor is like the size of the head of a pin rather than the size of a mason jar. It's really helpful to know not only, you know, what's coming, but what's been tried and why didn't it work. Josh brings it back to accessibility again. Achieve that and Braille will more than survive. I wonder what Louis Braille would have made of all of this. I'm sure he'd have hunted down ways that technology could service Braille. And Braille service technology. Which brings me back to the person who first told us about him. Sherry Wells Jensen of Bowling Green State University. She's all about using technology too. But Braille, reading and writing every day, that's still her main form of communication, her most cherished form. What else would you use for your personal writing, your diary entries? Your, your love letters. <laughs> Can you imagine? I have to do an audio love letter? Uh-uh. <laughs> no. There are things that we want to communicate that we really want to write down. And having the freedom to choose to do that when you want to, literacy is a human right. It just is. Our thanks to Sherry Wells Jensen. If you Google her, you can check out some of the research she's doing right now. And it's not the only time she's appeared on the show. Scroll back a few episodes and you'll find her in an episode Kavita Pillay reported called How to Communicate with Aliens. If you like what you heard today, you know what I'm going to say next. Please rate and review Subtitle wherever you listen. It takes virtually no time and it really makes a big difference in getting the word out. We are hungry for more people to listen. Thanks to Tina Toby, Alison Reed, and Jeremy Helton. Also to the World Public Radio Program, where every week you can hear what's going on around the globe. I don't know about you, but I need me some international in my newsfeed. I also need podcasts, especially from the Hub and Spoke Audio Collective. Subtitle is a part of Hub and Spoke. 
And so is the wonderful podcast Rumble Strip. Each episode profiles people from all walks of life, people who you don't normally hear from in the news. They're not, quote, important or groundbreaking or have a certain axe to grind. But after spending a few minutes in their company in a Rumble Strip episode, you really feel like you know them and you want to meet them in person. It's no wonder that The Atlantic magazine selected Rumble Strip as its number one podcast of 2020. Rumble Strip is hosted by Erica Heilman. Check it out along with all of the Hub and Spoke podcasts at hubspokeaudio.org. Stick around for a little postscript. It comes from Chansey Fleet. Chansey is the assistive technology coordinator at the Andrew High School Braille and Talking Book Library, which is a branch of the New York Public Library. We did a live show there a few years ago. Chansey's words were recorded then. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. In a world where computers can translate to Braille automatically and where the price of Braille materials like Braille displays and Braille production equipment is finally descending, Braille is more relevant than ever. But when people are new to it, it can feel two ways. It can feel amazing, right? Because it's almost like a secret code. It's something totally different. It has this binary feel. So sighted folks that are new to it or people who are new to blindness tend to think it's amazing, but they also tend to think it's awfully hard. But learning anything new, once you're past that first period of effortlessly absorbing things like a second language, is going to feel a little bit hard at first. I was inspired to stay with Braille and to make it a huge part of my life by my parents, who were both sighted. My mother organized Easter egg treasure hunts for me with Braille clues, and she learned enough Braille to do that. And my father, who's not a very politically correct guy, made me a beautiful Braille cuckoo clock with a little bird that had a long cane and dark glasses. (laughs) (laughs) And now that I'm here at the library, I'm constantly inspired by people pulling together families, professionals who support people who are transitioning into low or no vision, and patrons who have a lot of experience with Braille, welcoming and encouraging and studying with new folks who don't. So this is one place where I hope we can all work together to build down that kind of intimidating wall that we all hit when something is new and make sure that reading really is for everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.